Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you, bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A new study by researchers at UW-Madison found that students experienced unequal impacts from the pandemic based on income. Students in wealthier school districts had increased graduation rates, and students in the poorer school districts saw declines in graduation. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, students from wealthier areas who had longer periods of virtual or hybrid classes increased the gap in graduation rates by 5% when compared to poor students. Ryan Liu, the study's author and a professor of education at UW, said that falling one year behind could lead to loss of income for lower-income students. Um, The consequences of the pandemic are more complex than most people originally thought, says Liu, and this particular impact is likely due to disproportionate access to resources. Workers at the Chippewa Falls Line and Kugel's beer plant are on strike. Members of Teamsters Local 662 took the action Monday in response to what it described as an insufficient wage offer from its employer, Molson Coors. The 40 workers at the Kugel Chippewa Falls Brewery voted overwhelmingly to reject the contract. Dan Jackson, a maintenance mechanic for 16 years at the plant, said workers are underpaid for their qualifications and the number of jobs they do. Molson Coors is the fifth largest brewer in the world with revenues of more than $10.8 billion. Workers went out to the picket line for a second day yesterday with passing cars honking in support. The rain today may have put a dent in the drought, but Madison has a long way to go, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. In fact, Madison's now about nine inches below average for the period between May to July 11th. Normally, the city gets 12 inches of rain in May, June, and July, but as of this morning, it's only had less than three inches of rain. The last time Madison faced a drought this bad was in 2012. The dry weather and the low humidity has created what's known as extreme drought conditions. Local farmers say that they'll need about an inch to an inch and a half each week to be able to have even a minimal harvest. Stay tuned for later on in the show, where we'll break down your full weather forecast. Oh, yes, all the details coming up. (coughs) Pardon me. Dane County will hold a public meeting to get opinions on what the county should do with millions of dollars from the settlement of lawsuits with opioid manufacturers. Wisconsin as a whole will receive about half a billion dollars, which it will distribute to local governments. The Health and Human Needs Committee will hold a public hearing on Monday, July 24th at 5.30 p.m. to hear from members of the public. County Supervisor Rick Rose said it's important to hear from the public because many of them have been impacted by opioids. Information to connect to the public hearing virtually or to attend in person is available on the county's Legislative Information Center. Finally, tonight the city of Madison will begin considering allowing dogs on leashes in more of the city's parks. The issue of dogs in parks is a topic that is often under review by the Parks Commission. In 2020, a few more parks were opened up to dogs on leashes while 30 parks were left off limits. This is the first time, however, that a proposal is made to open all parks, with the exception of Ulbrich Gardens, playgrounds, conservation parks, and burial mounds. Dog owners would still need to get a dog park permit to visit those parks with their pets. 
According to the Wisconsin State Journal, City Parks Department staff said that it is difficult to keep dog owners from visiting those parks that they are currently prohibited from entering. Currently, there are nine parks where dog owners are permitted to unleash their pets. The city's Parks Commission will meet virtually at 6.30 to take up the proposal. And those are the evening's headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Last month, the Madison Common Council effectively killed a proposed student housing development, saying that downtown Madison needs more affordable housing, not high-priced market-rate housing. But after the city attorney raised concerns over the legality of that decision, the council voted on the proposal again last night, this time allowing the project to go forward. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more. After effectively killing the development last month, the Madison Common Council doubled back last night and approved rezoning of multiple properties to build a new student housing development off West Johnson Street. That vote now revives the proposed development, giving the green light to move forward. The development by Core Spaces would see the construction of a 12-story, 232-unit apartment building, largely geared towards student housing. All of the apartments would be sold or rented at market rate prices. The development would encompass most of the block contained by West Johnson, North Broome, and North Bassett Streets. The building would replace around 10 houses that, combined, hold around 72 units of housing. Before the project can get off the ground, however, all of the properties need to be rezoned to have one zoning designation. While it was unanimously approved by the plan commission last month, the full council ended up voting against rezoning the property on a 13-3 vote. That was after District A Alder MGR Govinder Arjun led a push to deny the project, saying that the proposed development would not be affordable to most students at UW-Madison. Three weeks ago when I voted against this proposal, I did so because I did not want to see lower income students displaced just to provide wealthier options in the downtown area. Three weeks ago, I admitted that I didn't expect the vote to go the way it had. Instead, I focused on the same goal that I will repeat today. This is not the type of housing that students need. We do not need pools. We do not need state-of-the-art fitness centers, and we do not need luxury. But the day after that vote, City Attorney Mike Haas says that he advised the Alders who voted against the rezoning that the vote could bring legal action against the city. State law bars cities and municipalities in Wisconsin from mandating any affordable housing. Attorney Haas acknowledges that he should have made the potential legal ramifications more clear during the original vote. While the council doesn't need to explain every vote that they take, he says that this is not one of those situations. But in some cases, uh, such as denial of licenses to sell alcohol or rezoning decisions or certified survey, survey map decisions, those are subject to state laws, which establish standards that must be the basis for plan commission and, and council decisions. And I would say, while well, tonight the council raised some important questions with the speakers, both Big and small questions, some of those, to be honest, are not relevant to the question before the body tonight and should not be the legal basis for the council's decision. That led to the issue being reconsidered last night. The council may reconsider only at either the same meeting or the very next meeting after the original vote and may only be brought forward by an alder who voted on the prevailing side. 
That means that only an alder who voted no last month could ask the proposal to be reconsidered. In this case, that was District 9 alder Nikki Conklin. District 19 alder Kristen Slack originally voted against the rezoning last month, but she says the legal ramifications are not the only reason she voted in support of the measure last night. I voted no last time. I'm changing my vote for two reasons. First, I'm being told that course spaces will maybe sue us, and I don't want that potential cost on the backs of taxpayers who are already on the hook for reducing our growing debt. Second, this project is supported by local labor unions, groups of people I also care a lot about. But we need to stop pretending that students win with what is happening around campus, including with projects like this. After over an hour of debate, the rezoning was approved around 1.30 this morning on a 17-2 vote, with Alders Govinder Arjun and District 6 Alder Marsha Rummel voting against. District 12 Alder Amani Lanimer Burris abstained. Early this morning, after the meeting, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway published a statement applauding the decision, saying that while she appreciates the desire to bring more affordable housing to Madison, denying over 200 housing units would do nothing to advance that goal. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Madison has seen its share of rats in the past few years, but after a study found endangered animals with rodent poison in their systems after they died, the federal EPA began to raise concerns. Instead, local pest control experts have looked into ways to deal with them in a more environmentally friendly way. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with one of these experts about his ideas. Last fall, the local public health department announced that they had found evidence of a rat infestation on the city's northeast side, sustained by easy access to food and shelter. Rats are not a new problem to the Madison area, and folks have been searching for the best way to rid themselves of the rodent. But while poisoning the rats might be the easiest solution, it may not be the most environmentally friendly way. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, determined that rodenticide, which is what most pest control agencies recommend, can be harmful to other creatures. Last year, the EPA proposed new restrictions on rodenticide, and after a study in California found endangered animals with the poison in them after they had died. Thomas Green is a Madison entomologist and owner of Green Pest and Tick Control. He says rodenticide is commonly used for rat control, but he chooses not to use it. Many problems with that approach, uh, but the big one uh, impacts on non-targets. He has developed different strategies to get rid of rats that he says do not harm other animals or the environment. He says that his strategies can not only help folks deal with an infestation, but do so in an environmentally friendly way. Green says that simply setting traps is more effective than rodenticide. In one test on the city's east side, Green found that rodenticide had not worked to solve the rat problem. However, Green says that when he started trapping, he captured 15 rats in the first week. Green says he focuses on setting traps for rats, then scours a house to see how they are getting in. And that involves just going inch by inch around the structure, um, sometimes under, you know, crawling under crawl spaces to figure out how they're getting in. You can get in through a gap, you know, the size of your pinky finger. Green will then fill the gap with wood or concrete. And now he has a new technology developed by Lifitech using carbon dioxide, which he pumps into the burrows, euthanizing the rats inside after a few minutes. Although Green encourages trapping over rodenticide, he says the carbon dioxide method is even better because it targets the rat burrows directly, eliminating the risk of other animals being harmed. When he applied this method after trapping on the east side, the problem was solved in a few weeks. 
we have more effective options with you know less non-target impacts than rodenticide, and I'm I'm really hoping that the pest control industry in Wisconsin and, and other states will will pick this up as a really efficient. Uh, an effective and lower risk approach. Public Health Madison in Dane County provides residents with several natural methods to mitigate rat issues on their website. These include clearing trash from your home, rat-proofing chicken coops, not leaving food out, and keeping garbage bins sealed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Evans. According to a new state-sponsored report, students with disabilities are continuing to be restrained and secluded during class at rates similar to those before the COVID-19 pandemic. That's an issue because in 2020, state lawmakers passed a bill to try to limit the practice in schools. To learn more about the report, our producer Nate Ruggiehout spoke with Joanne Yonke with the Disability Rights Wisconsin earlier today. Department of Public Instruction, or DPI, released a report showing that nearly 6,000 students were secluded and nearly 7,000 were restrained here in Wisconsin during the 2021-2022 school year. A majority of those incidents involved students with disabilities and took place in elementary schools across the entire state. To talk about this report, I'm joined now by Joanne Yonke with Disability Rights Wisconsin. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Now, Joanne, can you sort of outline for me here just what seclusion and restraint actually means for students, as in uh, what it is and why it is used? Sure. So at its most basic, um, restraint is physically overpowering a student, hands-on, you know, stopping them from being able to move. Seclusion is putting a student in a room that they are by themselves and cannot escape. So the, the law has a, a number of, uh, a number of uh, other pieces of the definition of what is actually allowed. So, for example, you cannot restrain a student face down on the ground. Um, that's very dangerous. Restraint is pretty dangerous, actually, in and of itself. Uh, it's very hard to, you know, one, there's no such thing as an absolutely safe restraint. The, the legal situations in which it, restraint and seclusion can actually be used are when it's the last possible resort and someone's going to get hurt. Um, so there's uh, the, the language of the law says that, uh, says that it has to be, you know, it has to be a last resort. It has to be something that there's, there's physical danger um, and this is a safety measure. The numbers, of course, are, uh, are very high. It's kind of hard to imagine that there are that many incidents, that many uh, times when there, nothing else could be done, that this really was the last resort. And quite frankly, seclusion, um, shutting a student in a room by themselves, is generally, if, if somebody's about to get hurt, you're not going to get the student to that room without restraining them. Um, and so in general, really, seclusion, is, seclusion is, a, is a highly questionable practice. And Disability Rights Wisconsin would, um, would prefer to see that not happen at all. Restraint is a last-ditch effort if somebody is running into a street and is going to be hit by a car. Of course, you're going to want to stop them. If a student, wants to, if a student is about to throw themselves over a balcony, of course, you're going to want to stop them. So we don't want to prevent teachers from doing that. But that's the, that's the sort of the general, the general look of what restraint and seclusion are about. 
And now looking at this report, now I mentioned it a little bit before, but can you sort of break down what this most recent report from DPI says? So this report is coming out of an update to the law on restraint and seclusion. Um, We have only been regulating these practices since 2012. And the original 2012 law, um, once it was in place for a while, we discovered that it needed improvements. And so we we managed to get improvements put in place when uh, the new law was signed in 2020 um, in March, just before the shutdown. And one of the improvements of this law was that the school districts had to report their data to the Department of Public Instruction. Previously, they just had to report to their school boards. And so now this is the third year of data that DPI has reported out on. So this is this third year is every one of the years. So this is the data from 2021-22 school year. Um, so not the one that just ended, but the year before that. And so all three years of data that we have have had have been impacted at least somewhat by not all schools are open all the way due to COVID. That being said, more schools were open a greater part of the year this last time around, and so you know so the. The numbers are going to, you know, in the next year or two, we're going to start to be able to properly compare what's happening from year to year. At this point, we don't have good comparison year over year other than when you're looking at a particular district and seeing what's happening in that particular district. Um, that, you know, that has, that has some validity to it, particularly if the, numbers have, uh, if the numbers have gotten way worse and they're using it way more and they were open the entire time. So that's the, that's the context in which these numbers are coming out. And frankly, they're still very high. Um, the part of the new law was intended to have the the teams, the people who are actually involved in the in the incident, have a debriefing after every incident. Have a debriefing of what could have what we could have done differently, what we will do differently, what kind of supports need to be in place um, for the student, particularly students with disabilities. I mean, students with disabilities have individualized education plans that can be used as a mechanism for putting those supports that they need in place. So, um, so there are you know there are mechanisms to try and plan to do better. And when you see a school have uh, you know there's at least one uh, there's at least one school in the list that has um, an incident uh, that 69 incidences of restraint and only one student involved. And when you think about that student being restrained again and again and again, and we're not figuring it out, that's um, you know, we should we should be able to figure it out after the first time and what went wrong and how can you know and and get better at what we're doing every single time. And now you sort of touched on this a little bit already, but as a member of Disability Rights Wisconsin, what what are sort of your overall thoughts on this report and where things could be going? Where we would like to see things going, of course, is toward support rather than these uh, rather than these really extreme measures and correct evaluation of when it's actually a safety issue. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that the report shows shows that a lot of these, uh, you know, in addition to being students with disabilities, a lot of these are elementary school students. And 
for these students, this is yeah, well for any student, but you know these little students. I mean, this is this is this is so traumatic, and it feels like punishment. I uh, at a at a children's mental health conference a few years back, I was approached by a mother and her son, and he had drawn a picture of what it felt like to be to be put in the seclusion room, and the picture was himself with tears running down his eyes, holding on to jail cell bars. So these students are experiencing this as extreme punishment and um and so for this reason you know this this and many reasons um we need to we need to go upstream we need to be doing better about proper resourcing um the state budget that just passed is unfortunately you know we unfortunately missed an opportunity uh, in a in a way that's just terribly disappointing and is going to be harmful for students as, as far as resourcing mental health needs and special education um we need smaller class sizes we need need better training. We need to stop the teacher turnover and the, the staff turnover. We need to be well enough resourced to do that so that we can get people in place who um, you know, who can understand and stay with the students and and really put the put the kind of adult support in place to keep situations from escalating to the point that there might be actually some physical danger. And Joanne, do you have just any final thoughts on this report that you'd like to share with us here? So I would like to. I, I, I think. I think what I'd like to leave folks with is just the the sense that that we can do better. That we need to support our students rather than um, rather than jump to measures that can be so harmful. And that uh, that there are just multiple ways to resource this and to learn how to support students um, in ways that uh, in ways that will let us avoid this kind of trauma that uh, that unfortunately is still just happening far too often. I've been talking with Joanne Youngke with Disability Rights Wisconsin about the new report from Wisconsin DPI about the use of restraint and seclusion in Wisconsin schools. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. On Wednesdays this month, the 6 p.m. local news is airing a special series produced by Rooted, a Dane County nonprofit committed to collaborations rooted in food, land, and learning. The series, titled Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations, features community garden elders of color in Wisconsin. In this edition, we'll hear from Diane Small from the Simpson Street neighborhood in Madison, interviewed by Rooted producer Nicholas Leet. We got tomatoes that's coming up, squash. We have cucumbers, bell peppers, collard greens, It's going to be some mustard and turnips in there. And then we have pumpkins that's coming up. We had a couple of kids that planted some watermelon seeds. They are coming up. So it's going to be things in there to harvest. This is Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations, honoring Wisconsin elders of color, sharing their histories, their journeys, and how they are passing on their traditions to new generations a limited-time feature produced by Rooted and WORT. Today, we hear from Diane Small, who we talked with on July 12, 2022. My name is uh, Miss Diane Small, and I'm gardening out of Mamie's Backyard Garden here at 2201 Lake Point Drive, Madison, Wisconsin. On Saturday, August the 20th, 
we'll be having the 13th annual Simpson Street Finest Families Neighborhood Reunion. 13 years ago, we just told people we were going to be down there and we asked them to show up, rain or shine. So we're going to do it because families want to be known that we didn't give up on them. You know, a lot of things happen in the community and people move on, but we're going to try to keep this going as long as we can. And when we can't do it no more, God will let us know. He'll let us know. In the meantime, we'll have Mamie's Backyard Garden. And Mamie, Miss Mamie, that was my mother. She used to be out here working with me in that garden. You're talking about a 74, 75-year-old woman. And we planted collard greens back there one day, and it started getting dark. And Mama went in the house, and she was looking out the window, and she hollered out the window, Diane, come on in here. It's getting dark outside. And I was down there on my knees, and I was putting them flowers in there. She had took the plastic off of them and laid them down, and I went in and dug the hole and put them down in the ground. I said, I'll be in. And I didn't come in till every last one of them plants was in that ground. And we had 99 plants that year. Every year we have so much food that's left over. And me and this lady named Mary doing the harvest. I say, Mary, we got to get rid of these vegetables. And we walked down the street and knocked on people's doors and asked them that they want some free organic vegetables. And they looked at them vegetables and they was like, this is free? And we said, yes, ma'am. And you can have as many as you want. And we had cucumbers, squash, bell peppers, tomatoes, green tomatoes. People love green tomatoes. Something about them green tomatoes. If you ain't never had no green tomatoes, you need to have somebody show you how to cook them. Because they be good, don't they, Eddie? Eddie know about them green tomatoes. Did you grow up here with your mom then? Actually, we came from Somerville, South Carolina. My mother was born and raised in Somerville, South Carolina. But uh, most of my planting came from my Aunt Maggie and my grandfather. They were the planters. Oh, they planted. Oh, my gosh. You want to see some stuff they planted. And my auntie, but she would plant string beans, okra, things like that. And when she got ready to pick it, we would just get the aluminum pan. She'll say, get that pan and come go with me. And then we'll follow her out into the garden and she would pick whatever it was we was gonna eat for dinner that night. And man, I tell you, it was good when she cooked it too. And then we had whatever meat that came from the hog. Granddaddy had a hog. And he had it cured, and whatever meat we got from that, that was 
Well, we had the meat and then the, the vegetables came from the land. But my grandfather, he worked hard. My auntie worked hard. My mother worked hard. And they left their legacy to show us how we should be treating things. I miss my aunt. She's been gone several years. My other auntie just passed just this year. And Margaret, she was 90. Four would have seen her 94th birthday. My mother's been gone 13 years, and so now all three of the sisters are together. And we as the siblings, we just have to carry on. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to continue on with the legacy that they left behind. They say, you train up a child in the way that he should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. So we're just trying to say, if you train your child up and show them how to do certain things, some of them might not like gardening. And that's okay. Because you can't make them like it if they don't like it. I mean... The first time my grandson, he's six years old now, that he got a chance to plant some watermelon seeds was last year. And out of those watermelon seeds he planted, we got at least about four or five watermelons from that. And he didn't know how to do it, but we showed him how to do it. How would you compare growing here to growing in Somerville? Were there challenges to the different soil, different weather? Oh, the, the weather, oh, you get sun every day. You get rain. I mean, you could plant fruit trees and we would sit and eat plumogram. You ever had a plumogram? A plumogram is that red, look like an apple and you open it up and inside it's nothing but little seeds with uh, juice yeah, in them. Yeah, yeah. Man, we used to sit down and we used to eat plumograms for days. And then my grandfather, he had a big old tree that shed pecans. And when it rained, it just littered up the whole yard with nothing but pecans. Big old pecans, sweet. Oh, they were good. So we had fruit trees, we had pecan trees, we had chickens, we had guineas running around. My granddaddy had a rooster that would wake us up in the morning and you know what the rooster sound like. So he would make that noise and we would just get on up. And then we had a corn shucker and I used to go in the shed and I would put the corn in there that we didn't eat that was planted because he loved to plant corn. We would feed that to chickens. So that was my job was to feed the chickens and then the food that was left over the night before, we put it in a bucket and then we'd have to take that over and give it to the hog. And one time I was taking that bucket over there to give it to the hog. That bucket was full, too. And I was a little girl. And I was taking that bucket over there to the hog. 
and I had to step up on this step stool and then pull the bucket or slop into the pen. And this hog jumped up on that pig pen and I thought he was coming after me. And I threw the whole bucket, the food and everything, toppled over on his head and I took off running. And Maggie said, girl, she looked out the door, she said, what is all that noise going on? What's the matter? I said, the hog was trying to eat me and Maggie, she said, girl, that hog didn't want you. It just wanted that food that was in that bucket. But that was a way of living. This is a good living. I went to school down there. I helped my family farm, you know, whatever it was that they needed me to do. I did it. Got up, went to church on Sunday, came home, ate dinner, rested for a minute, and went back to church on Sunday night. Those were the good days, though. You know, you don't get those good days like you used to get them. We try to have those days now, but it's just something that we hope will change, you know, that people will start getting back into some of the things that they really enjoy doing. If you enjoy painting, paint. If you enjoy cooking, cook. If you enjoy gardening, garden. Whatever makes you happy. These are the things that we're getting away from. And we just need to go back to those ways and try to fulfill and keep enjoying the life that God has set before us. There's a lot of things out here still left to do, but you just gotta wanna find what is gonna make me happy. But in order to see the harvest come up, you have to get out there and you have to work that field. And God gonna send the sun, he gonna send the rain, but it's just that little bit of stuff that need to be done. And it's not hard work. It's so peaceful. A lot of gardeners that's gonna hear this, that's out there, they gonna be like, she ain't telling no story. It is peaceful. I mean, your whole train of thought, it just goes into what you're doing and you forget about everything else. We plant it, and when it comes up, if I have somebody to help pick them, they can pick them. And if I don't have nobody to pick them, I'll pick them by myself. Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations is a project of Rooted Wisconsin and WORT, funded in part by a grant from Wisconsin Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities in the state of Wisconsin. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this project do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Rooted, or WORT. The 14th Annual Simpson Street Finest Families Neighborhood Reunion, mentioned by Miss Diane Small in the previous segment, will be held this year on Saturday, August 26th from noon to 6 p.m. at 2202 West Broadway, Madison, Wisconsin. 
And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, a lot of gardeners are going to be happy about what's been going on today. Uh, If you watch today's precipitation crossing the area on radar, you will have noted the dissimilarity to any kind of rainfall we've seen come across southern Wisconsin really in the last six or eight weeks. Uh, No spotty little convective cells scurrying past like we saw late Monday night or patchy brief showers raining themselves out. This was real uh, wide-scale, I won't call it a drought buster since I couldn't possibly have made up for the 7 to 10 inch moisture deficit that we currently have around most of the area and that we mentioned in the headlines. But it was certainly about the best thing that uh, most farmers could have wished for at this point, especially since uh, we're entering what is climatologically anyway, the hottest period of the year coming up in this coming week. The last I looked, radar estimates indicated amounts near or above half an inch across pretty much the entirety of southern Wisconsin, from Grant and Crawford counties north and eastward four or five full tiers of counties up to northern Juneau and Adams and Washura counties and eastward from there. So a huge area got a lot of rainfall. A number of places, including those uh, recently uh, classified as in extreme drought conditions up in northwestern Dane and uh, southern Sauk counties, Picked up well more than an inch, and uh, we picked up about one and two-thirds of an inch officially out at the Dane County Airport this afternoon. And mercifully, the mesoscale convective system that delivered us the rains was slow-moving and mostly centered down to our south. So a lot of the stronger convection with its harder, faster rainfall rates occurred down towards Illinois and further south down into the state of Illinois, while the Nice stratiform area of uh, lighter, steadier precipitation blossomed up here to the north. Unfortunately, we've had some uh, issues with some of the uh, GOES satellite imagery from the College of DuPage today, so I haven't been able to get a really good visual of the cloud developments since about mid-morning. But with clearing behind the main convective band down to our south late this afternoon, some uh, severe redevelopment appears to have uh, occurred down in uh, northern Illinois where much warmer temperatures and dew points reside. You'd never know it being up here, but it's uh, quite a bit steamier down there. And a sheared low-level wind profile has provided a significant tornado threat there. Indeed, uh, in the past uh, hour or so, a number of warnings have flown up in the Chicago area, including one issued about 15 minutes ago for a major tornado in the uh, Berwyn area, Stickney area, just uh, west and south of Chicago. So that may be making headlines from here. Uh, Activity should be generally working out of the area, though, as we go through the rest of the evening with low clouds uh, likely hanging around much of the rest of the night, given the damp, low-level environment and light winds. Uh, We'll see those clouds mix out into more cellular cumulus tomorrow, and uh, with some additional passing high clouds, I think we... Uh, may not quite reach uh, 80 degrees, otherwise we'll uh, be stuck in the upper 70s tomorrow. And from there, we'll continue to see upper waves cranking eastward and southeastward over us as we go into and through the weekend coming up as the closed upper low that's in the pit of the what is an enormous upper trough that now sits over uh, most of the north-central part of the continent continues to whirl around up to our north in the Hudson's Bay region. Each one of those waves whirling past us will produce a little bit of uh, lifting and convergence lower down in the air column. So 
Uh, provided we have sufficient moisture available in the lowest couple of miles of the atmosphere, we may get some more rounds of passing showers. Uh, well, first early Friday, that looks like the uh, timing of the next of the uh, significant waves. Uh, then possibly again, uh, either later Friday or overnight into Saturday. Returning low-level moisture and rising dew points uh, with that later feature uh, look like the look like it may produce the likeliest uh, candidate anyway for another decent rain, but uh, certainly nothing like we saw today. In fact, nothing like we saw today anywhere I can see in the upcoming week or two. And there remains a good deal of variability in the timing of these uh, coming waves and the evolution of the overall pattern, actually, as we get out late in the weekend period and into next week. Uh, but back to tonight, anyway, rains should uh, continue to press uh, steadily eastward out of the uh, listening area as we uh, go over the coming uh, hour or two. It looks like most of the rains are now east of a line from uh, about Jefferson County and on eastward from there. Uh, uh, it, uh, the temperatures will drop into the uh, upper 50s, uh, just a few degrees really, on the light northerly winds generally below 5 miles per hour. Uh, the severe weather threat will stay down uh, south of the Illinois bar, uh, border area, down towards uh, Chicago, and uh, work eastward from there out across Lake Michigan. Uh, tomorrow, leftover low cloudiness should uh, gradually lift into more widespread cumulus with some passing high clouds as well. Uh, temperatures will reach, uh, as I mentioned, the upper 70s, possibly 80, on northwesterly winds, which will come up to 48 miles per hour. Clouds will increase again overnight into Friday with uh, passing rounds of showers possible uh, going into the day Friday, probably uh, widely scattered at that time. Temperatures will drop to the mid-60s overnight as uh, wind, light winds back more west and southwest. And Friday, uh, midday clearing or partial clearing should allow temperatures to reach the low 80s with the aid of uh, what will be increasing southwesterly winds coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour. Showers and thunderstorms become uh, possible uh, later in the day and in the overnight period. Uh, I'm generally expecting that activity also to be uh, scattered uh, with perhaps some better overall coverage. Uh, temperatures will uh, drop to the upper 60s as winds fear more west and northwest, and uh, sticky dew points in the upper 60s start to moderate a little bit. And Saturday will be a somewhat drier feeling with temperatures in the low to mid-80s with, uh, I think, mostly clear skies that day. We'll be in the mid-60s overnight and back in the low 80s on Sunday. Again, with some passing shower chances later in the day, but uh, nothing uh, widespread or strongly organized. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 59 degrees. The dew point temperature is 57 uh, Low overcast up at about 7, 000, uh, 700 feet, excuse me. Winds are out of the northeast, uh, 15 miles per hour, and the barometer has been fairly steady. It's at 29.79 inches of mercury. We go now to July 1964. As the civil rights movement rolls on, women are urged to declare their independence, and there are warnings about a possible full-scale war in Vietnam. Stu Levitan has the news from 59 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All the years come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, July 1964 
As the month opens, the UW chapter of the Friends of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is raising bail money and gathering supplies for the so-called Freedom Summer Voter Registration Drive in the Deep South, where several UW students have already been arrested. But a pall hangs over the effort, as former UW student Andrew Goodman has neither been heard from nor found since he and fellow civil rights workers Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney disappeared in Neshoba County, Mississippi on June 21st. Campus administrators joined the movement as they and colleagues from three historically black colleges and universities convened their Committee on Cooperation to start planning a groundbreaking faculty exchange program. Local faculty will visit three schools in North Carolina and Texas for stays ranging from a week to a full year in residence, while the black faculty will come north for insights into new methods of instruction and administration, and to enlighten the UW faculty about the unique problems they face in the segregated South. Economics professor Jack Barbash says the exchange program, funded by the Carnegie Foundation, shows the university's approach to addressing what he calls, quote, the greatest social problem of our time, civil rights. A recent headcount revealed there are fewer than 100 black Americans at the UW, including 21 from Wisconsin, two fewer than the number from Nigeria, part of a contingent of about 50 black Africans. Foreign policy takes center stage on the 19th when three graduate students tell the Socialist Club that the U.S. should get out of Vietnam before the conflict there becomes a full-scale war. They say that despite its military superiority, America is already losing because it is fighting an authentic independence movement supported by the Vietnamese people. A demonstration has been scheduled for August 6th to protest the growing American involvement. And on the 23rd, Betty Friedan, author of the controversial bestseller The Feminine Mystique, gives a talk entitled The Crisis in Women's Identity, Challenge to Education. She tells a predominantly female audience packing Great Hall that women have been conditioned by upbringing, education, and mass media to lose their self-respect as independent human beings capable of being more than just housewives. Friedan calls on educators to, quote, take the responsibility of affirming the image of women as a person by showcasing successful women and maintains that career or marriage is a false choice. Women are not really free if they are only free to move in the home, she says, and she castigates TV advertising, noting that, quote, in commercials, the big thrill for women is getting their sinks white and still keeping their hands soft and feminine. The married mother of three closes with a clarion call for self-determination. Quote, Women are not equal to men unless they assume equality. Equality can't be given to someone. Women must be willing to leave their private hiding place, test themselves, and write their own story in the world. The UW professor who knows most about how mass media affects public policy gets good news. As Professor Lee Dreyfus General Manager WHA-TV, is promoted to Associate Director of Television. Dr. Dreyfus will continue to teach in the speech department, where he received his Ph.D. in 1957. The state of Wisconsin also has something to celebrate, as about 200 people, most of them state employees, attend the dedication of the five-building, $12 million Hill Farm State Office Building Complex on the 20th. 
There is probably not another office building in Wisconsin that houses people whose functions are so vital to the continuance of an orderly society as this one, says Governor John Reynolds, citing building tenants the Public Service Commission, Industrial Commission, and Department of Motor Vehicles. Nothing to celebrate for women interested in the controversial topless bathing suits designed by Rudy Gernrich. First, City Attorney Edwin Conrad says he will prosecute any women wearing the suit in public. Then he says that, quote, the merchants of Madison owe it to the citizens here not to perpetuate this hysterical insanity that's going on, and calls on, quote, all the citizens of the city, and particularly the clergy, to back me up on this. So Manchester's department store, which quickly sold one suit, returns the remaining five it had ordered. Store president Morgan Manchester is a bit conflicted. Everybody who has any style sense at all is selling them, he says. I personally don't think they're in very good taste, but I don't want to pass moral judgment on them. It's easy to pass moral judgment on those Madisonians who are doing wrong at city parks and beaches, Parks Superintendent James Marshall reports there have been more than two dozen incidents recently, including burglary at a city beach house, motorcycles being ridden through picnic areas, teenagers using obscene language and engaging in immoral activity. Most disturbing of all, someone stuffed a dead dog through a beach house window. The increase in crime and vandalism comes after Mayor Henry Reynolds cut $7,500 for special park patrols from the police department budget, money the council restores at the request of Marshall and Police Chief Wilbur Emery over the mayor's objections. Hot riders are in hot waters. Local judges crack down on young drivers drag racing around the Capitol Square. Under a new policy announced by Judge William Byrne and endorsed by his judicial colleagues, Drivers who gun their motor and make a fast start from a stoplight will be convicted of racing and assessed six points, whether or not they're actually racing another car. Previously, when there was no proof drivers had made a prior agreement to race, charges were reduced to speeding, a three-point violation. Byrne, a former Dane County District Attorney, calls on the police department to, quote, station as many officers as they feel necessary on the Capitol Square in order to stamp this out completely. And on back-to-back nights, the 200 block of State Street is the place for musical greatness. On the 22nd, jazz immortal Louis Armstrong delights the Capacity Orpheum Theater crowd of all ages with the infectious jazz of his native New Orleans. And, of course, his recent number one hit, Hello, Dolly! The next night, surfs up across the street as top pop group the Beach Boys bring the summer sounds of Southern California, including their recent number one hit, I Get Around, to a Capitol Theater filled mainly with screaming teenage girls. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, summer-celebrating WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Abigail Levins. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Nicholas Leet, Nu Tao, and Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered the broadcast this evening. Nate Reggie helped 
produced it. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.